Explode your to-be-read pile with The New Release Index, your new best friend for finding the best new books. Curated by the book nerds here at Book Riot, it will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers, and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing! This is the Book Riot Podcast. It is a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 346, recording on Thursday, January 9th. Welcome to 2020, a new decade, a new you. Same us. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky, coming to you from a website called bookriot.com that is about books and reading and cool things. Yeah, and thank you for giving that qualifier that it's a new them, but a same us, because I felt a lot of unexpected pressure there for like yes. 10 seconds. I'm like, wait, am I supposed to be new? Every day I wake up a new man, Rebecca. That's just how I live my life. It's a little bit less than I was the day before, but I'm different. <laughs> Well, we're all just slowly dying, Jeff. That's Happy right. New Year. <laughs> get busy living or, well, you're dying anyway, so get busy living. That's, that's the, the Shawshank Redemption. We talked about that. Movie. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, that was the first draft. <laughs> get busy living because you're dying. Wait a this minute. Is... I think, can we talk, I have a note on that. Can we mm. talk about that one for No, no, mm-hmm. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> it's been a while since we talked, though. You've, we had the Books of the Decade episode with Amanda that released last week, and then we took some time off, and you know we're getting back into it. It's our first regular show we've had in a while. We're talking about news. Um, I don't think we have any follow-up to do. I, you know, I do have one follow-up thing, and there was a nice piece, uh, nice, a relevant piece in the Washington Post a while back about people using their digital services at their libraries and all the things going on and about mm. Macmillan and everything. One thing that came out of there that I just wanted to touch on real quick is people using, spoofing, smurfing, I can't even remember the night, where basically saying they live in a place they don't live, Mm. using someone else's card so they can get more holds, digital library services that basically they're not strictly entitled to because they don't live in that jurisdiction and aren't paying the taxes that go into it. There is a little bit of misbehavior is what I'm trying to say. There is some things that people are exploiting holes, gaps in the system to use services more than maybe they should. And unlike the turning the Wi-Fi in your Kindle off so that the thing doesn't get returned back, which I guess is fine because it, op- it still does open up that license for someone else to use, that is actually abusing the system. That's one thing I want yeah. to say. And, and, and it brought to mind another abuse of the system I've seen that doesn't have to do with libraries. Audible is really generous with its return policy. And I never thought about this before, but I saw a story going around about some people who buy one Audible credit and then listen to a book, return the book, and then use their credit on something else over and wow. over again. Don't do that. That's also not okay. You're abusing the system for the rest of us. It feels like you're getting away with something because you are. Um, it came out in the context of some authors saying that they have to pay back royalties if they get more returns than new sales. Oh, interesting. And someone was saying that in the context of Audible, they actually had a negative balance with Audible because people had returned more books. And how widespread this practice is, I have no idea. I can see it's very tempting. You mm-hmm. know, Audible is going to let you do it forever, so you're going to abuse it forever. Probably not a bad idea for Audible to limit the number of returns you do in a given year. Like, I, I feel like there maybe there's an algorithm. Like, if this person has returned 10 in a row, maybe that's a problem. But some of this is a tragedy of the common situations. So I'm trying to say, if you can do the thing you're supposed to do, it'll be better for everyone. So mm-hmm. that's my that's my note on that. So Yeah, I'm really surprised by that that I'm not surprised that that behavior exists because you know like if there's a system, there's a human that will exploit it. Um but I'm surprised that Audible has continued continued with that policy for so long, especially knowing that like what you're saying about authors having to pay money back if their balance tips in the wrong mm-hmm. direction. Like I wonder there just has to be a point where it's not worth it for Audible to allow that. And those kinds of policies just seem to be less and less common. Like a few years ago, L.L. Bean, which had always had the policy that you could return anything at any time for any reason or no reason, Mm. like built on really the like social contract and the 
trust system like that you could call them up and be like, I need to return this jacket that I've had for 20 years and they would take Mm -hmm. it back or like exchange it for you for a new one with the assumption of like, you must have a reason if you're doing this. Um, And they got rid of that a couple of years ago. It's still like a very generous return Mm -hmm. policy, but I think they hit a place where like you couldn't operate that way in the world anymore, which is a bummer, but also a reality. Yeah. So those, I didn't have a good bucket to put those in and I had collected the notes since our last sort of regular podcast episodes. Just, I got to get out of my system. Got takes, as I said to you before recording, got takes in me. <laughs> not really a take. It's just, you know, that's not cool. Don't do it. Yeah, that's you know, not like cool. you feel like you're getting away with something, but in aggregate, it makes things worse for everybody. Um, anyway, all right, let's get on to the news. A lot of top line news, some of it coming out of 2019, but this one I wasn't really expecting because he's not old. Not, I mean, he's 77 or was. Um, Sonny Meta, the. I don't know. Probably the the lion of yeah, Titan is the word I was going to use of the editorial world. Um, who was the editorial? I don't even know what the title was. At Knopf, head of Knopf. Okay, mm-hmm. publisher. Sometimes these titles are a little hard to say. Um, but a, a lion, a titan in the world of late twentieth century, really middle to late twentieth century literary publishing. I mean, McCormack, McCarthy, Tony Morrison. Robert, K. I mean, you can go on and on and on. Knopf, one of the real, you know, prestigious literary imprints, only has had three editor in chiefs in seventy-two years. He took over from Robert Gottlieb, who was also a huge deal mm-hmm. in 1987. Like some of the na- Fifty Shades of Grey, we just talked about the book of the decade. Steve Larson's Millennium series, tens of millions of copies there. Joan Didion, Haruki Murakami, and Tyler. Go on and on and on and on. It's interesting to it feels like I was gonna get your take on this or your impression. Feels like a transitional moment. I'd be fascinated. Who's next? Yeah. Because he I was feels like an that. old guard in a good way. Like uh but is there another Sunny Meta? Or is the next person gonna be I don't know. Will they will they do it differently? It just feels like, oh, this is one of the people from the like Andrew Wiley, right? It's like Andrew mm-hmm. Wiley and Sunny Meta, like these are people that were influential in the 70s into 80s and 90s. We live in a different world now. Will the new editor-in-chief of Knopf feel modern in a way that Meta kind of felt like wasn't modern anymore? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think Meta felt modern earlier in his career. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And uh, like, as you read about him, there were concerns when he took over from Robert Gottlieb that he was going to be too commercial. Um, you can see from his career and from his list that did have Tony Morrison, as you were saying, but also Fifty Shades of Grey and Lean In and Wild and Bill Clinton's memoir and just like a whole host of others that he really did a beautiful job of balancing the literary and like beautifully critically acclaimed work um, that often was very commercially successful as well with commercially appealing stuff like Fifty Shades of Grey Um, and demonstrating, I think, to publishing that you could do those things and still be taken seriously. Um, It will be, I think, really interesting to see who comes on next and what is the like, what's the fresh thing now? Um, Mm. Because as we were talking about on the Books of the Decade episode, it feels like literary fiction is really in this place where it's not just, um, to quote a friend of mine, it's not just like sad books about people getting divorced (laughs) anymore, Mm -hmm. Um, that there's a lot of genre coming into literary fiction and literary, like, that concept of like just a true literary novel seems to be less and less important in a way that I think is really interesting and challenging for readers, that there are so many ways that serious fiction can go now um, without being like a dry, sad book about a person thinking their thoughts. Yeah. Um, It'd be really fascinating to see like how much evolution um, Random House is willing to go for here in, in who takes that throne. And some of it is the way that obituaries work. It's hard to know, but just looking at the authors mentioned in this Times obituary link in the show notes, bookwrite.com slash listen, there's not a name that they put in terms of an author that feels of the moment. Like it's a lot of right. older guard people, like people are still alive in publishing, but it's a Salman Rushdie, right? I mean, okay, it's mm-hmm. great. Uh, but there's no Jesmyn Ward here. There's no Whitehead. There's no soliciting. I don't, again, those aren't not, those aren't Knopf authors, I don't think. Mm. Or Doubleday. He, Actually, Knopf Doubleday. He, Doubleday kind of is Whitehead. In there to get... Yeah, and um, Meta did add... He brought Tommy Orange and Chimamande Ngozi Adichie oh, okay, and Karen Russell Well, in. there you go. So he did bring some uh, some current voices into... Yeah, right. Yeah, into Knopf. Um, or whoever's working on those. Whoever's working on Whitehead and 
Tommy Orange. Right. Like if Meta didn't edit themselves those themselves personally, which I doubt, though he did edit Don Winslow himself personally, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. That person probably should be who it is, right? Like that I agree. that 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 kind of a person. But interesting to see who becomes um, the head there. Speaking of book sales, mm. let's do a sponsor. Sponsor. Then we'll talk to the best-selling books of 2019. Explode your to-be-read pile with The New Release Index, your new best friend for finding the best new books. Curated by the book nerds here at Book Riot, it will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers, and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing. Okay. <sighs> wow. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess it's not a surprise. I think it's by how much it won the race is a surprise. Don't you think? Mm-hmm. I mean, look, t- t- you take this. I can't talk. You take <laughs> I, I did. Do this for me. Would you please <laughs> do me this favor? Oh, oh all right. I'm just going to start 2020 yeah. off with you owing me one. Yeah. Uh, the number one best-selling book of 2019, shocking no one. It's a book that came out in 2018, Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. It sold 1.8 million copies. Um, so that's a lot. Yeah. And the second best-selling book, and these are all in print, um, was Becoming by Michelle Obama, which mm. also came out in 2018, which sold 1.15 million. So we're the crawdad sing coming in at 700,000 more copies. To give um, some sense of scale, <gasps> that difference, that 700,000 between one and two between crawdads and Becoming, to do the same difference between two and, let's so 450, you've got to go down to the number 16 book. Mm-hmm. So the difference between The Institute at number 16 by Stephen King and becoming the number two book is the same number of copies as between one and two, which gives you some sense of we are more than one or two standard deviations uh, for crawdads there, which we've talked about this before. I don't know if there's anything else to say about it. (sighs) I guess I wish it was something else, um, but there you go. Yeah, just it was just a hit on the scale of fiction hits that you don't see. Nope. That often. Um, This list every year is a reminder to me, and we think about books all day, every day. So Mm -hmm. I imagine a reminder to the general like reading public that most of the books that sell in a year are not books that are new in that year. And in like inside the publishing world, especially, and if you're a book shopper, you're seeing all the new release kinds of things. When you walk into stores, it looks like the things that readers are mostly caring about are new books. But on this list, like number one is Crawdads. Number two is Becoming. Uh, The third one is Dogman. Uh, Dov Pilkey, Forest Educated, also from 2018. A mm-hmm. um, couple more of these kids' books, Wrecking Ball, Dogman, and Diary of an Awesome Friendly Kid. I'm not sure when those were published, but Girl, Wash Your Face by Rachel Hollis is number eight, and Girl, Stop Apologizing, also mm. by Rachel Hollis, are number nine. Um, I know Girl, Wash Your Face was not a 2019 title. No, it wasn't. I'm not sure about the apologizing one. It was 2019. Okay. Yeah. Um, those sold 672,000 and 666,000 thousand or 667,000 copies respectively. Um, that's the, you know, paperback self-help hit, um, end cap at target kind of a book. And the like soft, like it's a, um, Christian light self-help kind of thing. Um, the tattooist of Auschwitz by Heather Morris. That was a Harper paperback also came out, I think in 2017, maybe 2018. Our good friend. Oh, the places you'll go by Dr. Seuss coming in at number Mm. 11, 633,000 copies of Oh, the places you'll go sitting on shelves from your aunt. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many ants bought that? Like 400,000 of those are bought by ants. (laughs) So many, so many. I've got nieces and nephews starting to graduate high school and college, and I had to have, like I had to like make a resolution that we were not buying all oh, the places you'll go. Like I cannot contribute to the Doctor <laughs> Seuss complex. Big Seuss. <laughs> like Horton hears a who is also inspirational. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, 
another dog man unbelievable unbelievable this is i think this is the thing that um shot that surprised me the most about this list is all like the three dog man titles on this book two Um, wimpy kids and two wimpy wimpy kids kids. Yeah. yeah and i understand that you know people buy lots of books for kids and that kids tend to go nuts about like certain series but i did not grasp like the size of the dog man phenomenon i told you on the last episode i was the only one that put it on there i'm like this is a huge deal like dog it's just man no, is a i don't experience deal. it at all i know yeah, I, I just know. didn't yeah i know amanda's boys love it and your kids love it yeah. and i was like okay but this is clearly it's a huge deal um then strength finder 2.0 that book has been out since the dawn of time <laughs> that's the who moved my cheese of this like five-year window right like there's the the everything i need in kindergarten the seven habits there's always one of these like crossover professional self-help that sells millions mm-hmm. of copies for 10 years and then no one buys it again this is the one i mean yeah 462,000 copies last yeah. year uh, you got a stephen king a graphic novel by Raina telgemeier called guts um mm-hmm. Cool to see that there. Very Hungry Caterpillar. And then we round out the list with The Pioneer Woman Cooks by Reed Drummond, which is her first cookbook, which came out several years ago. So it's interesting that that's like Hmm. continuing to go. Unless she had another one with the same name. I'm pretty sure that's the name of the first book. Uh, I thought she had a new Um, book out. I'm not sure. Both of us are unsure. But you know what? You can Google that yourself. Yeah. I'll double check. And then You Are a Badass by Jen um, Sincero, which is like a motivational self-help finance yeah, situation. it's a it's a sweary Rachel Hollis without the gods. There you go. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, okay, so it's sometimes it's hard to make a story out of these because you're like, yeah, people buy books we don't read, or there's like a big market for books of people that we don't care about. Actually, I've read more of these than I thought. I mean, because I've you know I've done Dogman with my kids. I did Wonky Donkey <laughs> with number fourteen. No, we did the annotated yes. and annotated about um, Very Hungry Caterpillar, of course. I guess the ones in terms of the surprises or like the big the big winners that you wouldn't say. I mean, the tattooist of Auschwitz, that's a Harper paperback at six fifty five thousand. That is a huge win for Harper. That's yeah, a that's, huge book. That's got to be book club phenomenon right yep, there. That's right. The other one that I think is interesting, we follow this and I don't keep good records. And luckily, it's impossible to go back historically and look because the, uh, of big data about publishing. Um, <laughs> that Stephen King number for the Institute, it's got to be one of his bigger hits of late. That book has been on the so, bestseller yeah. list. You typically don't see the Stephen King on the top 20 of the year. And he sells a lot, but typically not enough to crack the top 20. And this book continues to sell. I think it was still, I just looked at Publishers Weekly, the weekly ones. And it's still, you know, it's holding it out for hardcover fiction. If you look mm-hmm. at it that way, hardcover fiction, that's less than a year old. Yeah. That's like number one, I think. I think so. Or The Guardians, The Grisham, Doubleday. Oh, yeah. I think that's also hardcover, relatively new. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what else, what other stories there are to tell yeah, just, about this. I think it's just a good reminder that most of the books in a year are backlist that sell. Yeah, that's right. And uh, some of it is driven, these top 20 are driven by some books that will stay on this list forever. Um, I just Googled, and a fun fact is that all of the Pioneer Woman's cookbooks are called the Pioneer Woman Cooks, colon, some subtitle. Oh. Um, so there is a new subtitled one um, that came out in 2019, but they all start that way. So I'm going to mm. assume this is the new one. Yeah, I think just the way they formatted this this uh, title, they didn't have room for a colon and the mm-hmm. subtitle, so they just left it off. I would yeah. assume that's the new one. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it feels like... I'm not sure what to say. I mean, we talked about the good. I mean, maybe as a follow-on from the Goodreads rant take about how that's all white people. There's only Michelle Obama mm-hmm. on the top twenty here. Um, so you have to be the best-selling memoir of all time by a singular political figure to be a person of color and get on this list at this point. Yep, that is a tough beat. Um, tattoo. I mean, I guess surprises. <sighs> Educated, I guess the staying power of educated is a story. Mm-hmm. Tattooist of Auschwitz, the Rachel Hollis machine. Yeah. A big book from King selling. The Raina Tagemeyer, people don't know. Oh, Telgemeier, is that how you say her name? Telgemeier, yeah. Telgemeier. She wrote Ghosts, I think. And this is their next one after that, Ghosts is Guts. Mm-hmm. That book sells a lot. I see that all the time in the lockers of the kids, at the, in the kids of my uh, school that my kids go to. And then. It's kind of it's kind of as normal, I guess, which yeah, I'm not sure what to say about it. Yeah, notably, nothing on this list other than where the crawdads sing was picked up and publicized uh, widely by celebrity book clubs. There you go. Which, How about that? 
Celebrity book clubs have the power to sell a jillion books was definitely one of the headlines without supporting data in 2019 that we saw repeatedly. And I think this gives support to our theory that what's going on with where the crawdads sing is like maybe it got a little boost from being a Reese Witherspoon Mm -hmm. pick, but there's something in the water with that book that just like in the zeitgeist, like it just landed in a way that made it recommendable and shareable and people recommended it and shared it. And it Mm -hmm. became a word of mouth hit that none of the celebrity book clubs have the power to do by themselves. It also then got a, it got a ton of marketing. Um, Putnam has been feeding money back into, um, or at least it seemed up until very recently, there was still money going into like publicizing the existence of where the crawdads sing. Like I saw a giant display of it in a Hudson news in um, the Atlanta books, uh, the Atlanta airport bookstore over the holidays. And you don't get like a big thing displayed on a shelf for free. Most nope, of the time nope. that's paid placement. So they're, they're doing some stuff um, with it there, but none of those other books that Witherspoon or the Today Show's book club or any of the ones that we hear about um, that are, I do believe they're pointing readers towards specific titles, but I don't know that they're growing um, the sales of a book in a way that the stories want it, you know, want to have it be true. Well, to be on this list, you have to be, I mean, essentially, even at number 20, you have to be a genuine phenomenon, yeah. right? Like a genuine phenomenon. And I, none of those celebrity whatevers are able to do a genuine phenomenon the way that Oprah did back in the day. Now, maybe if you start looking at the 50,000 copy range, like what of them sell 50 that would have sold 10 before? Mm-hmm. Maybe, And for publishing, that's a huge deal. Sure. Um, but it is not, it can't ratchet you up to the very strat- right. the stratosphere of publishing. You want, some, you want some cold water? I'm not sure. Maybe this warm water, <laughs> I'm not sure what to do. So I know, I think trade publishing last year did about $7.5 billion in sales. Sounds like a lot. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a lot. And you, you want to guess how much revenue Apple's AirPods did? Just the AirPods for Apple. Oh, I heard this number and my eyeballs popped out of my head and so then I immediately forgot it. <laughs> $12 billion. Oh. And hey, I like my AirPods, <laughs> but it does. It's a, it's a reminder that even in a year where crawdads becoming a bunch of middle grade selling things are going pretty fine for publishing on the whole, all of trade publishing is about sixty percent of Apple's AirPods business alone. So there you go, tough, tough beat. Um, anyway, and Disney's Disney's movie business last year, I saw this. Disney did. We talk about PRH having a huge amount of the trade sales. Disney did like 80% of the Ameri- North American box office last year. They have like nine films that did more than a billion dollars at the box office. Just wild <sighs> stuff. Speaking wild. of the box office, I didn't go see Cats like I threatened. <laughs> um, I didn't either. I because the reviews that. were so – I mean, they, I was expecting them to be bad, but like bad in a way that I was like, ah, that's, yeah. they're just – but they were so, – I mean, the, oh my lord. The day it came out and the press embargo lifted was – like the best holiday gift ever on Twitter. Um, and I have since taken Twitter off my phone, but that day I was very amused. Reading. It was like a European pheasant hunt for critics that day. It was yeah. just <laughs> throwing them out and shooting them down. They had a field day. Yeah, it's, it does sound very bad. And not in a way that I could stomach, like actual authentically bad, like worse than it should be for just yeah. being a movie of cats. Um, I have little women still to see. There, so why was I talking? Oh, cats will go down, apparently, as one of the great losers in Hollywood history. Like, it was horribly expensive, and it made almost zero dollars. And I saw a piece about it in some of the other losers from the year that mentioned Motherless Brooklyn and The Goldfinch. Mm. A wipeout. Outside of Little Women, a wipeout for adaptations. Now, Cats is an adaptation of a musical, which is loose. I mean, it is based on Old Possums. I mean, it's hard to call it a literary adaptation, though it is. But that just got me thinking about The Goldfinch did zero business. Motherless Brooklyn was a fiasco, and Cats was a disaster. And Little Women has done pretty good business, and Mm -hmm. it's supposed to be pretty good, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it at some point. But not a great fall for the adaptation nation citizens out there. Tough beat. (laughs) Not Not on the film tip, at least. I am... Uh, still working through Watchmen, ah. um, but I think that's the winner of Adaptation Nation I, for the year. My my three world, my two world spoiler. Um, we'll talk about it again once you're all done. I think on this show, mm-hmm. uh, blown away. 
Yeah. I was blown away. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been really fun watching Bob, who has not read the comic, be increasingly confused. I thought, it, well, we'll save it for the future. <laughs> yeah, show. we'll save it. All right, let's do a break, and then uh, we'll come back after a sponsor. Okay, Obama. Speaking of Obamas, yes. the his favorite books of twenty nineteen. Mm-hmm. We like these lists. We now are in a place where. If we couldn't guess the titles, we could guess the vibe. Yeah. Is this outside the Obama vibe, inside the vibe? This feels pretty inside the vibe yep. for me. Um, I'm mostly glad that they didn't just post it on Facebook this year. Yeah, also on Twitter, <laughs> which makes us feel way better. <laughs> and I saw it on Instagram Oh, also. okay, which is Facebook. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But feels better than, yeah. okay. <laughs> than All right. Facebook. <laughs> I think... Um, some of the picks, these feel like they're inside the post-White House Obama who gives fewer foxes yes. vibe. Like, there's some pointedness to these. And I'm assuming, you know, like, he read a lot of books this year and he was thinking specific things when he chose which ones to tell the world about. Like, um, Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino is a really certain kind of, like, mm-hmm. cultural criticism. <laughs> the very first book on the list is The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by mm-hmm. Shoshana Zuboff. Um, there are works of history. There's um, lots of fiction. Normal People by Sally Rooney, one of the big fiction hits of the year. And then The Yellow House by Sarah Broom, which won the National Book Award, yep. right? Yeah. Um, the Orphan Master's Son won the National, or was it the Pulitzer, a few years ago by yeah. Adam uh, Johnson. Mm-hmm. And then Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo, which uh, won the Booker Prize, uh, co-won co it with Margaret Atwood, but we're not talking about that anymore. No testaments on this list. Yeah, no testaments on this list. Um, Trust Exercise by Susan Choi, I think, is an interesting pick for him because the book is weird and edgy in a way that I believe Obama would enjoy, but I'm surprised that he's like mentioning it here. And I think this list would be different if it were accompanied by, like if he had to accompany his list with like four sentences. Like the Gates, like Gates does, right? Each, right. Yeah. yeah. If he had to be like, here's why I liked this thing. I think that the lists would be tamer. And um, they're still pretty tame, but there's a real like polymath sense to Obama and a guy who's interested in the world and interested in a lot of different kinds of ideas from a lot of different perspectives. And that shows up here and it always shows up in these lists. Um, Even if they're a little, you know, like safer than we might wish. I think these are getting more interesting. I was looking at it and there's sort of a, I think you can break this down. You can pie chart Obama's reading personality. Mm. There's about 27% dad books. Okay. There's about 34% political stuff, and the rest is literary hipster. Mm, mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Yeah. Like, The Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee, that's a dad-slash-literary-hipster book. The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, political book. This book about the East India Trade Company, that's a dad book. Say Nothing, The True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland, that's a dad book. Choi, that's a hipster book. The Topeka School by Ben Lerner is a hipster book. Trick Mirror, the political book. Like those mm-hmm. are the three kind of lanes he has going yeah, on here. Right, right. To How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. That's definitely hipster lit right yeah. now. Um, he's got a special section here for sports fans. Mm-hmm. That's nice. But yeah, I think I think you're right that those are basically the bells that yeah. he rings. The literary hipster books that he picks, I think, are getting more interesting um, now that he's not trying to get elected. But you don't see anything wild. You still don't see anything weird, which is fine. I'm not saying it is, but like Trust Exercise won a giant award. The Yellow House wins a giant award. Normal Mm -hmm. People, very talked about book. The Orphan Master Son won a giant award. So he picks from, like, I kind of feel like he picks like who someone who likes to read and they go in the bookstore. That's how he picks up the books, which is we sort of suspected about mm-hmm. Obama. Like, he'll post about going into, I forget the name of the Washington, D.C. book. Politics and prose. Yeah, politics and prose. He goes in, seems to look around, picks from what's available, but he's not like reading, um, uh, he's not like reading a LitHub list of the best experimental fiction yeah, of the year. Yeah, Obama doesn't have like a subscription to N plus one. No, 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 no. Which is fine. This is great. <laughs> yeah. This is great. It's just totally very interesting fine. to see. Um, <laughs> Biggest surprise. It is a, a very surprise? like man of the people kind of list. Is yeah. there a surprise? Hmm. I was surprised by trust exercise because I, I think that's maybe recency bias on my part. I just read it over Thanksgiving, but I was like, wow, this book does a lot of things that make me like 
I'm hard to make uncomfortable in fiction, um, and it made me really uncomfortable. Um, in I, I jumped off that train after five pages. I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I'm not doing yeah. this. I, I remember texting it. you and being like, uh, <laughs> there is no way that this is going to survive the Jeff O'Neill threshold. Um, so I'm, I think I'm surprised by that, but only because I was like, well, there's a lot of squeakiness here, but what the book does is really interesting. Yeah, I think the only big surprise might be, not big, the surprising one for me is more about the publishing date is Orphan Master Son. Like, that was mm. when we first started the site. That's like six years ago. He probably bought that on one of his trips to politics and prose oh. six years ago, and it's been on his TBR. Yeah, he's now he's now two and a half years out of office. He can get some of his deep TBR backlist. Yeah, the, the second slide on this Twitter thing that he's got is books he recommended earlier in the year that he, oh, that right. he liked as right, well. Right, right. Um, so like the Nickel Boys is on there and other like other things that came out this year. Um, but Lab Girl by Hope Jiren, which came out a few years ago and Exhalation by Ted Chang, which I think was earlier this year. Um, American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson and then like Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel. Like, you know, he bought that when it won all those prizes and he just hadn't gotten there yet. What a shine for Tony. Tony Morrison's collected works. Right. The whole thing. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, I think you. I the the image that I'm holding in my heart is that when Toni Morrison died, I just like to imagine that he sat down and like spent a week. Yeah, bluest eye forward, bluest eye yep. forward, just starting and, and moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um. Let's see. What's next after? What's next? Where do you want to go next? What is next? Um. I think we need to mention to our listeners, but then just point you all in the direction of resources of people who know much more than we do that over the holidays and then into this new year, the RWA, which is the Romance Writers of America, um, has like imploded functionally yeah, yeah. Um, over what began with this is what I have gotten my head around. I think there are a lot of pieces going on, but what I have my head around is that Courtney Milan, who is a romance writer um, and a well-known one at that, and who served on the board of the RWA for four years had um, pointed out content in other authors' books that was racist content. And at times had called the books a racist mess or had been perceived to be calling authors racist and had been like censured by the RWA um, like for calling things racist. <laughs> um, and along the way, an author, one of those authors that Milan had criticized filed a complaint with the RWA and over the holidays, this led to the RWA taking action against Courtney Milan, uh, who will no longer be serving on their board. And the response to this has been, loud mm -hmm. um, as it should be because this is like digging in about punishing the person who calls out racist content is not exactly the position you want to be taking um, in 2020. And the defenses of RWA have been upsetting. Um, I think the failure to comprehend why people are upset about it has been very telling. Um, and then sort of all kinds of other mm -hmm. All kinds of other like really gross dirt um, has come out and calling it dirt almost feels trivializing, but like this feels like dirty stuff yeah. um, that has been coming out about what's been going on at the RWA and what it's been like, especially for the women of color who are involved in the organization and have been trying to change it from the inside out, but swimming against the tide of um, – older writers and white writers, older white writers, like there's a lot of white feminism happening mm -hmm. at the RWA. Um, or I don't even know if they would identify it as feminism. Um, like basically being offended that someone was offended by their work um, mm -hmm. and it becoming about that. Um, there have been like dozens of pieces. <laughs> We've got links to several of them in the show notes. Um, and there's just a lot of information going on here. Um, if you want to hear more about it, I believe that um, Trisha and Jess, who host our When in Romance podcast, will be talking about it. And they will do it much more knowledgeably than either of us can about the romance publishing community. Um, but interesting that publishers are paying attention to this. Yeah. Um, like, and that Avon and so Avon books, which is a um, Harper Collins imprint and Harlequin now because they had merged with Harper. So there's some stuff going on at Harper Collins where Avon um, 
issued a response that in support of inclusive publishing, they are not going to invest in a promotional sponsorship or have a presence at the RWA National Conference. Um, this year, many of their authors have been involved with RWA and have like used that as a resource and networking, and they are not going to be taking their people there. Um, and Harlequin uh, is also pulling out um, of RWA this year and will be reconsidering um, their involvement for 2021 if they see things change. Um, I think that's the best possible response, really, that you can hope for from two of the biggest publishers of romance in a moment like this. And Avon especially has made like big strides toward publishing more inclusively. Um, that's This is a strong message. Broke this morning that Damon Swade, incredible name, the president mm-hmm. of the RWA resigned, and Carol Riddle, the executive director of the RWA, mm. have both resigned. So a, it sounds like a reckoning that needed to happen. Um, wild that it happened over such a specific situation, and we've seen this several times. It's interesting to think about. We saw it with Vita, right? That right. Some of these institutions that are around books and reading, and I think this is happening, and I'm sure in a bunch of different fields. They weren't unable to evolve, and so there was basically a revolution from the inside mm-hmm. that wiped away a lot of the existing structure and personnel and are, have been, should be replaced by some other structure. Um, I don't know that much about this. It sounds like initially the RWA's mistake was beyond beyond the optics was kind of taking a procedural thing about Courtney Milan, who was on the ethics committee criticizing another work and making sort of procedural point about like you shouldn't do that or something. Mm -hmm. But then it just really opened up a can of snakes, worms, dragons, like not worms is too big, like a can of racist dragons about what was actually going on over there. And it was overdue. And people had been sitting on a lot of stories. I read a long blog post by Nora Roberts Mm. about her long disgruntledness with the RWA, and she was lamenting being quiet over many years, which I thought there's several stories like that of we just sort of put up. We thought on the whole it was a good organization for romance and showing solidarity, and I get that. Romance as a genre, under duress from the wider world, like people take shots, and there's a certain bunker mentality that I think you would need to do to, and a certain strength, you think this is a thing, and it became a very powerful and influential and I think affirmative organization for a lot of people but I think it also provided some cover to people doing things that needed the light of day. Yeah, absolutely. I think there had been stories about um, just real failures of failures to take action around um, racist issues Mm -hmm. and real failures to include work by people of color in a way that was fair um, at all, fair, equitable at all um, around the Rita's, which is the big romance award. um, The awards that are given every year, lots of folks who have served on different committees had, I had seen conversations about them talking about those experiences. And it does seem like RWA formed in, as a way to bring together romance writers who had been, as you were saying, like kind of the redheaded stepchild of um, of publishing for a long time. But I think that that has changed. That like the that the reading public um, takes romance more seriously than it had in the past. And as Amanda pointed out on the Books of the Decade episode, we owe some of that to Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, but booksellers are taking romance more seriously. There's romance covered in the New York Times book review. Um, it's sort of out there. And I think the need for this kind of organization that could like lend to a bunker mentality, like I don't think the bunker mentality is necessary anymore for mm. romance writers, um, but that they were put in the position where it was like, well, this we need this, we need some kind of organization. This is the one that we have. And people do just sort of like, well, you just have to take the lumps if you want the benefits. Um, but it sounds like the downsides really started to outweigh the benefits, um, at least in this particular way that addresses race. And I'm really glad to have it be talked about. I, I'm kind of torn between wanting to see like people come in and rebuild RWA in a new direction and like do this mm. with insight and intention or like maybe it's not needed anymore and 
romance writers can continue to like to work together and do something new and different. Um, I'd be curious to hear from our listeners who are more inside mm-hmm. the romance community, what you would like to see happen um, now, but we'll have lots of links in the show notes. You can Google your way to all kinds of stuff about the RWA disaster, um, but definitely worth mentioning here. Yeah. Okay. One more sponsor and we'll wrap up the show. This is an update. I guess it could have been the follow-up spot. Um, Book culture, which as we covered, boy, the fall into the summer, Rebecca, Mm -hmm. do you remember? I don't remember. It was a while back. Long story short, asking for public support outside the normal realm of independent bookstores asking for public support in this, you know, not just shop at our stores, but asking for, you know, large S's basically from the community to help Mm -hmm. them stay open. Um, some of it was more coherent than others, some of the messaging yeah. around what they were needing. And I, I feel like we have a circling the drain situation now, even after all of that. Um, Chris Dublin, who runs the four stores, uh, wrote on Facebook a couple days ago that one of the stores was seized by the landlord for being arrears in rent. Mm-hmm. They were three and a half months behind um, he thought that catching up some would help. They paid cutting our arrears by $35,000 in December, but still behind. So look, it sounds like they were 70, 80, 90 grand maybe behind in rent and it got seized. Um, said even had a good holiday season. I just don't know, Rebecca. I'm not sure. This This feels like something that maybe needs to end, but I just mm-hmm. don't know what to say about it. But to the point where a bookstore gets seized even after they started their, and this is Capitalist Community Lending Program, I'm not sure what to do with these sorts of stories where is there any accountability behind how the money was used? Like, do you trust? Like, I, I think I understand, and there is a world in which I think it makes a lot of sense for the public to support a local store in excess of just buying their wares, I think, that, mm-hmm. in the way that makes sense. But kind of like we, we saw with Kickstarter and GoFundMe and some of these other places, just having a page where you can donate money is probably not enough transparency and accountability for what's happening to that money. I think that's my takeaway yeah. from this particular story. What do you think? I think that's a good takeaway. And I always try to ask myself, like, what would my take on this be if it were any kind of store other than books? Right. Um, and I think there, the, like, if you're if this is happening repeatedly, I believe that there are real difficulties with operating a business, especially in New York city. Um, that that's very hard and that changes to taxes and like city fees and all kinds of things make it even more difficult. Um, changes to the minimum wage, make it more difficult over the holidays. Um, employees of another, um, bookstore, like local bookstore chain in New York voted to unionize. unionize. And that happens in response. Like, you know, when your folks are unionizing, then you have other things that you have to try to solve. Like it's tough Mm -hmm. to do this. Um, but if you can't solve the problems or like run the finances of the business, like something does need to change. And it seems like they're, you know, book culture is not going to be successful in getting like the New York government to change their policies. And the community lending program did not seem to provide the relief that they need. And so like something has to give. And it seems like that's like that direction here is going to be that this book culture, maybe all of them um, won't stay open, which it's sad. Like it is sad to lose a bookstore. I do believe that bookstores do a lot of work in their communities. Um, But all kinds of stores do a lot of work in local communities. And I think it's important to try to think about this from that perspective rather than just like, well, but we have to keep the bookstores because bookstores. Yeah. I mean, there's that logic too, but there's also the, so how much do you need to get out of your hole? And then how are you going to stay out of the hole? And I think that staying out of the hole Mm -hmm. question was the one that wasn't really answered here. You know, there's one thing to get loaned a hundred bucks to, you know, get your, uh, your jewelry out of hawk or something, but what do you need to do so that you don't need to get to hawk your jewelry? Right. Um, right. I, I don't know that that was never clear to me. Like what was the plan for increased sustainability? What was the plan? I do think if you're going to ask your community for money, then some kind of transparency about what your situation actually is. And unless I missed it, that they were more than five months behind already in their rent. Mm-hmm was not part of the story we were told. Yeah. And I, I could have missed so. this and I didn't, I wasn't donating money and getting regular email updates, but I did follow the story and it sounds like the whole was more intractable than people thought. And 
this is, it's, I think it's too far to say this was sort of an abuse of goodwill, but it's borders mm-hmm. on abuse of goodwill to ask for a bunch of money, say it wasn't enough, and then ask for more, kind of, maybe? I'm just not sure. Some sort of structure would have been helpful, like how to fix it. How to fi- how do you, how do you fix yeah. it? Some of it is about money, but like some of it is about the business, and the community can't really help you fix your business. I don't think. Yeah, I I think that's true, and also fundraising is really hard. Yes, like, like it's much more difficult than like on a large scale. Raising a lot of money takes more than a bunch of individual donors each chipping in ten bucks on Facebook because they like you. You know, like if you're trying to turn an organization around, or like I sit on the board of a nonprofit. If you're trying to grow a nonprofit organization in a certain direction, you're looking for like your individual donors, mm. but you also need the people who can come in and be like okay, so this one project that you want to do that is going to cost $5,000, I'll give you that. Or how much do you need to be able to do this thing? I'll write you a check for it. Like you need to have the money bags, people that are invested in the mission and willing to like financially invest in it. And like that is that it's just critical that um, most organizations have that and it's required to thrive. And I think maybe the folks at Book Culture like, underestimated the difficulty there of raising this kind of money or of the expectations that people who would give you enough money to get you out of this hole would have about what's going to be communicated or what the plan would be. Um, I don't know. It just, there's like a, uh, we don't know a lot here because book culture, it feels like has not shared a lot about it. And when you're in the place where you're asking your public for a lot of money to do a thing, I think more of the cards need to be on the table. It almost, it's kind of like, you know, you and I have both been involved in nonprofits and one, the thing nonprofits spend a lot of their time doing is raising money. Like mm-hmm. de- you have development officers and grant right. writers and things mm-hmm. like that. And maybe there's a world in which, you know, the ABA either has like resources available or, you know, you can hire out or somehow conscript someone who knows what they're doing about development, about charitable giving on an ongoing basis. Um, because every university you've ever heard of has a lot of people right. spending a lot of time and money to do that. And maybe that's something that becomes part of the independent bookstore's best practices toolkit. Like, it, be, you know, it's, it's socks and candles and community events and subscriptions and memberships and also some sort of development program where you have outreach and direct mail and holiday outreach and all the things you do on, like, Hashtag Giving Tuesday. I can see that being a sustainable part of an ongoing business but you have to do it a lot. And it's hard mm-hmm. work. It is tough sledding is. to recurringly ask people for money and make the case for them. And because you're then at that point, you're competing with other kinds of charitable giving, frankly. Yeah. And you have to be very transparent about, yep. I'm going to take your $5,000 and here's where it's going. And mm-hmm. then accountable a year later for, we did the thing that you gave us money to do. Right. Um, and we're successful. So you should keep giving us money. And if you are not successful in doing those things, you better have a really good explanation for it or you erode trust. Yeah. And that's just, there's just a lot of, I think, confusion um, going on here. It's, it's sad to see this happen. It also, I think you're right, feels like maybe this, it should happen at this point. Yeah. And it's, mm-hmm. it, of all the places that feels like there would be a local patronage that would throw dispensable, um, uh, what am I? What, what's the word I'm looking for? Expendable, disposable, disposable, expendable. expendable income at a local sort of institution. The Upper West Side of Manhattan is where you know this is yeah. the home of You've Got Mail. On the other hand, You've Got Mail is a story of an independent bookstore failing. <laughs> so I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm sad to see that Columbus books book culture is a really great place to stop in. It is a really good place in that neighborhood to stop in. So, and that in Ratgard is too bad. I just feel like there's another story here about charitable bookstores as char- sources of charitable donation mm. that maybe the worm should turn a little bit on. I, I think it could happen, and I, there's a way in which uh, I would support a local bookstore in a way in addition to just spending money on it. But I think what I want now is kind of what I want from a Kickstarter project. Now I like a plan. I like some accountability. I yeah. like to know that my hundred bucks for the whatever Apple. Um, AirPods case that I'm buying might actually ship and what's going to happen if it doesn't and so on and so forth rather than, boy, we need money. Wouldn't it be great if the community gave us money and here we are four months later and we've got our crap seized. <laughs> tough yeah. beat. That's a tough look. Um, that's our show today. 
we're going to start, we got two weeks until we're going to start up with extra episodes, the bonus Wednesday episodes. Yes. Um, stay tuned there. The first one out of the gate is going to be a spring preview, even though we're going to be in some of the books we'll talk about will have already come out. But if you have a book that's a good um, candidate to buy, sell, hold on, that comes out, we'll see, we said January through April, right, Rebecca? Anything being released yes. January through April mm-hmm. is a candidate to be talked about. Uh, podcast at bookriot.com is the email address that we will check. Do you have what? Do you have a big book of the spring that you have that you're most excited about, or whatever, Rebecca? Just as a tease, Ooh. anything you're thinking of? Is there anything? Let me find my list real quick. <laughs> we we're, this is a preview hot take, but like such a fun age came out yes. December thirty first of twenty nineteen, which uh-huh. we're going to make eligible because we make the rules here. Um, <laughs> but a technically twenty nineteen book that's getting a lot of press. I picked it up. I'm going to read yeah. it. I think I it's really the first it. big book of 2020 and it was a 2019 book. So yeah. welcome to I really loved that one. I'm really excited to get to Weather by Jenny Alden. Yes, me too. I loved Department of Speculation. Um, really interested in that. There's a new Emma Straub book called All Adults Here. Mm. And um, I'm really curious about New Waves by Kevin Wynn. That one has been. I was. Bubbling I didn't know that was happening, and I saw it in Publishers Weekly, and I I yipped a little. I was so excited to see him with a book, and it's about yeah. technology and startups, and he's worked for. I don't. We shouldn't say probably, but like he's worked some places that we businesses we've talked about on this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, he's an interesting guy with a cool perspective on culture, and I think like I'm really excited to see what his first book is going to be. Um, so those are those are the ones that I'm I've already read. Such a fun age and topics of conversation by Miranda Popke, um, which I think are going to be big books of the spring. They're on our list for discussion. But my personal ones I'm stoked about are Weather, All Adults Here, and New Waves. I think so, too. I think the one I'm most excited for, though I wouldn't have said it in, until I started thinking about it, is the the last book in Hilary Mantel's, you know, Cromwell trilogy comes out mm. on March 10th, The Mirror and the Light, which I haven't been able to find a page count on that because I'm very nervous uh, uh, about that because don't I, I want to read this. <laughs> take a thousand years. Oh, my God. I just looked at it. It just I, I, the Amazon link. Oh, is, no. What do you want to guess? Oh God! Um, Eight fifty. You are under. Oh. Uh, you are over. You are over. Okay, okay. but it's seven eighty four. Oh boy! Well, I'm sad to report that all adults here by Emma Straub comes out in May, so we'll be talking about that on a later show. I mean, a chance for an unprecedented feat with um, the Mirror and the Light. Both of the first two novels in the trilogy won the Booker Prize. If this one wins the Booker Prize and all three of them win the Booker Prize, we're talking about, I don't know, I can't think, I mean, in, in 20th century literary fiction, as we've seen it comprised, I can't think of an equivalent. There's nothing like it. There really isn't anything like it. Um, so anyway, I, I'm really excited for that. And it looks like I will be excited for it from March until about May 15th uh, for how long <laughs> it'll take me to get through. Anyway, if you've got another one, podcast at bookriot.com. Rebecca? Welcome to Happy New Year to you. Thanks as always. You too. Have a good one.